one of the pushbacks from the industry was, you know, how can you call food addictive? Because when you do sort of brain scans on people when they're using, say, cocaine versus Doritos, the brain reacts much more strongly to cocaine. The sort of increase of dopamine levels shoots up far higher for cocaine than it does for for Doritos. And I sort of thought about that for a while and went back to my experts, who, by the way, many of the people in Hooked are brain behavioral researchers who started out looking at drug addiction and shifted over to look at food addiction. So they sort of know both worlds really well. And that's exactly what you just said. One of the first things they point out to me is that Doritos don't have to cause the brain to get as excited as it does for cocaine because of the food environment. They're cheap. They're easy to get. You don't have any risk buying Doritos like you might an illicit drug. They're everywhere. The cues are constant. There's this sort of steady drumbeat that the industry has going for it to get us to acquire those Doritos. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Michael wrote me the morning before we scheduled this conversation to say he ended up spending more time on the screen when he intended to spend less. He wondered if we should skip it. Longtime listeners may remember similar results with guests Jim Harshaw and Casper Craven. I told him what I told them, that I'm not looking for a Disney version implying that acting sustainably was easy or that the switch was easy. I suggested to him that listeners, you, would engage more with hearing the challenges than hearing perfection, though it would mean him sounding more human, also more vulnerable. He magnanimously agreed, so we'll get to hear his challenges, the challenges of trying to do something that he thought wouldn't be that hard. As it happens, his next book is called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions, which overlaps a lot with getting hooked on screen time, getting hooked on lots of behavior that pollutes that we don't want to do, but we keep doing anyway. So he ended up with a lot of what I believe is a sneak preview of his book and how it relates to polluting behavior, especially Michael's challenge. Here's Michael. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Michael Moss again. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Thank you. Now, I'm going to give the listeners a little bit of background because uh, a couple hours ago, you emailed me and said, maybe you shouldn't do this because my screen time is up, not down. And I wrote back and said, what I hope a lot of the listeners know is that I've had a couple of people email me things like that before. And I wrote back to you what I said to them was, how about an episode 1.5 where we kind of revisit and we could stop it here. We could continue. But the, the people in the past have revisited and thought what worked and what didn't work and what they could do differently. And I suspect something like that might, might happen here. And I've also been looking at your book coming up, if I remember right, March 2nd, 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, hooked, which is about how, you know, but here's all I know is about how the food companies hook us. And I feel like the app makers, the, the cell phone, the people who put stuff on the cell phones are doing something similar. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of, I mean, almost every kind of commercial product out there has a genius behind it, figuring out ways to, to get us to buy that product. And spend, and or if in the case of like a cell phone, spend time with it so that you can expose yourself to advertising and buying more things and, and all of that. So Hooked is really about looking at kind of food in the context of addiction and raising that question of whether we should think of 
the food we're eating, especially processed food, as being addictive and whether that can help us think of ways to kind of change our eating habits. And there's certainly parallels with screen time. So you kind of gave away the punchline, which is, yes, I started out the week thinking I would reduce my screen time by one half. And I looked at it yesterday and it was up 101% for the week. And there's a couple, I mean, maybe a couple interesting things that happened. One, I mean, the good news was I immediately after talking to you sort of went into my phone and deleted all of my games, which consisted only of one. Uh I was a big fan of this word letter scrambling thing called Word Warp, Uh which is totally addictive. And I'd been using it for years as a relaxation and kind of as a mind focus tool, if you will, but probably way too much. And that was a very easy thing, deleting it, because a new company just bought it and they changed it in a way that, that, that was annoying. And so deleting that was super easy. But then almost immediately, I was hit with sort of life changes that required me to use the phone in ways that I sort of wasn't anticipating. So for example, I'm learning to play the cello, and which is a lifelong thing, but I'm starting now. And this week, one of the challenges in cello required me to pay really close attention to the tuner app that's on my phone. So I had that thing running for hours and hours while I was while I was struggling through one new lesson in cello playing. Mm-hmm. So I think that that contributed greatly to my phone usage. And then I had I had some work chores come up that required me to use social media and the notes mode in the phone. And so when I look at my usage time, which you can do on the phone. They can break down to you which apps are sucking most of your time. I'm sort of seeing those those apps up high at the top. So that would probably explain it. And then lastly, I'm sort of reflecting on the last week. And I think I think my biggest issue though was sort of ending our conversation and our chat my challenge, not really having committed myself to it. It was more sort of okay, I'll give this some thought for a minute or two and let's see what happens. And so clearly one of the lessons in in trying to change what you value in food or any of the gadgetry in our lives or any aspect of your life kind of requires knowing that we've spent a lifetime building up bad habits and it's not easy changing those habits. You really have to kind of put your mind to it. And focus on that, at least at least till you kind of you start changing the neurons in your brain in the way that you want to, it takes time and it takes a little bit of effort. So I think my my sort of half-hearted little week of trying to reduce the screen time illustrates what happens when you don't put yourself to it in a in a meaningful, full-throated way. And and by the way, too, I should mention too that one of the one of the pitfalls in, in trying to sort of change an aspect of your habits only half-heartedly is, is that you run the risk of coming out at feeling very dejected, mm-hmm. which I'm not about because I'm not feeling dejected. Don't, don't worry about me. But <laughs> this happens in 
this happens all the time in dieting with people. Well, they'll, they'll try to change their eating habits overnight by glomming onto a very radical diet that might work for a week or two or a month. But one of the kind of things we now know about dieting, if, if you're changing too much of your eating habits at once and you're, and you're trying to, you're trying to shift over to a diet that's strange, your body and your brain will, you know, can't sustain that kind of effort for long, typically for most of us, unless you have huge kind of executive powers of, of, of determination in there beyond what most people have. And so often what happens with dieting is that people will try one of the hundreds of diets that are out there, whether it's the grapefruit diet or the liquid diet or the even the fasting and alternate days diet, if that's too strange for you, and it'll fail eventually, and then they'll feel bad about themselves and go back to their old ways, maybe even more, you know, more negatively, more as, as a hurting themselves more than they were before. Well, you said a lot there. And first of all, I want to thank you for sharing openly what happened with you, because a lot of people don't share what actually happened. One of the feedbacks I get a lot from is like, they're like, Josh, well, you did all these things. I'm thinking to myself, like, here's how great things are after you've switched. When I eat my famous no packaging vegetable stew, I find it really delicious and so forth. But I don't share enough of the six months when I transitioned there. You were talking about how the body rejects these changes. And I was like, yeah, when you amp up, I mean, I thought having been vegetarian before, I figured I had a fairly high fiber diet. So there's a bit of bloating involved in that six months that eventually I think like the, the gut biome, microbiome adjusts and maybe my own systems adjust. So now I'm back to normal, but there was a period in there where it was kind of rough. Mm. And it probably makes for a better story. So I should probably share more of it. So I appreciate your sharing that. You also mentioned that it felt like we, the first thing you said was that you used the screen a lot for playing, practicing the cello. And something inside me said, that felt like different kind of screen time. Like, I bet you didn't, you wouldn't look back at that and regret like, oh, I wasted time practicing cello. You probably felt good about that. Yeah, well, my cello teacher actually doesn't want me to use the tuner app so much. So it was a bit of a crutch. Uh-huh. But, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yes. So that was an aspect of phone usage that I, at any rate, sort of felt very comfortable with and saw as a very positive aspect of the phone. So, so very quickly the phone usage got divided into things that I felt really okay about using the Mm -hmm. phone for. And then things that were sort of garbage waste of time that, that, yeah. Now I'm curious if you, if you know, if your garbage waste of time in your words use, did that go up or down, stay the same? Yeah. I'd have to think about it. So I told you and I got rid of a game, so that would have brought it down. I think I would have had to look at, well, then there's a middle category of things that you think might be good, but social media, you know, can be such a time fuck that <laughs> it can be very misleading. So there's like that whole middle ground where maybe you think, but that could just be the addiction speaking. So it's not, it's not so clear cut. I'm glad you said that could be the addiction speaking because when we get addicted, we start justifying. Correct me if, if you know differently, but my impression is that We'll get addicted to something, and then because we want to do it, and we could, it could be sugar, it could be fat, it could be cocaine or alcohol or gambling, and then we tell ourselves, and we tell ourselves, 
this is why it's okay. And we start believing that. And because as long as it's only in our own heads, it feels true and right and just and the way it should be. Often when we say it to someone else, it sounds crazy when we say it actually out loud. But often if someone pushes back against it, there's like a name for it where we, we hold onto it even stronger. And I see it most in insidiously, in my feeling, is with flying, with not flying. People for years were like, there's no way I could not fly. And a lot of these people have come back to me during the pandemic, like, hey, it's amazing. Now without flying, I'm spending time with my family. I'm, I'm like, I told you that four years ago and you said it was impossible. And they're like, oh, well. And so an experience can often undo what debate and convincing will often reinforce. Right. But that just that that might be the addiction speaking. That was a very yeah. clear way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So it's all sort of a very fluid thing. So yeah, probably there was more success in getting rid of the purely nonsensical things that, that a waste of time things that I was looking to cut back on on the phone. You also said there was a, a level of commitment that it sounds like at the beginning you thought, oh, the six day thing, no big deal. Yeah, sorry. I was, I'm sorry, I was thinking of something else, but I think it relates to that too. I'll, I'll just blur it out before I forget it. So so I think what the other aspect of this that really interested me was that it also sort of made me rethink my goal. Why was I wanting to reduce screen time? Mm-hmm. And what exactly did that mean? And so really smart people who talk to people about losing weight, for example. And one of the things you should know is once you are overweight by a certain amount, it is extremely difficult to lose weight. Extremely difficult, especially for obese people. And I spent time with some of the best clinicians who are in the business of helping people to lose weight. And and almost the very first goal on the part of the clinician is to help people rethink that goal because they'll walk in the office saying, I want to lose 70 pounds. And the doctor I'm speaking of will go, well, how about five pounds? Because that's a much more realistic goal for your situation. And let me explain to you why. Because every aspect of your body and your brain is going to be pushing back on your wanting to lose weight. It's an incredible sort of evolutionary biology that we're, we're now saddled with in this, in this mismatched era with the food that, that we're now facing, processed food. And so thinking very clearly about how much of your goal is actually realistic, given which, you know, given your biology, given your needs, I think it's also an important aspect of changing what you value and changing your habits. Yeah, that, I have not experienced that difficulty. I remember being chubby as a kid, but getting fit was basically over the course of decades. And it wasn't oh, but I'm like, talking about obese. I mean, yeah. I'm talking about people who are 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight, and they have been for years and years. I mean, I'll just give you a little thing. We don't have time, but, but it turns out body fat is engineered to resist all efforts on your part to get rid of it. So it's an organ in the body, much like the heart and the lungs. And it has hormones that communicate with the brain. And so when your body fat gets the sense that you're trying to whack it back, by eating less, it will send a signal to the brain to lower your resting metabolism. So you're burning less energy and defending the body fat unknowingly, even while you're sleeping at night. And it goes on and on and on. The, the, 
body fat just in itself is extremely cunning in defending itself. So, so I'm talking to people who are, are clinically obese at that level. It's so extremely hard to get rid of that weight. And often their goals walking into a weight loss clinic are totally unrealistic given, given what they're facing. It sounds like you, it, there's a physiological, they, hold, they, they stay there, they make it hard to metabolize, I would guess. But it sounds like also it gets you thinking in ways to like, I want, like, it'll get you craving what you used to eat and making you want to go back to what you did before. I think that will also send signals to the brain that make you hungry. Yes, absolutely. So they will increase the power of cues uh, to get you to want to eat. So you will, you know, that McDonald's sign you see going down the road, if you're in the mode of dieting where you're trying to cut back on weight, your body fat is working to make that McDonald's sign brighter, more seductive, wow. more interesting to you. Oh, yep. In the way, presumably, that our ancestors would be able to tune into nutritious foods that were, I mean, ancestors back in like 100,000 years ago, a million years ago. Yeah, so so I actually spent quite a bit of time in the in the first book looking at our evolutionary biology and the ways that our nose, gut, body fat, brain were all designed to get us not just to eat but to overeat. Because up until the last fifty years ago, overeating was a really good thing to do. It enabled us to have more babies. I mean, it's the one thing that sort of helped us break away from chimps. Four million years ago, and procreate more, which which is what evolutionary biology is, natural selection is all about. At the root of things is having kids to perpetuate the species. But everything about us became designed, as I say, not just to love food and be drawn to it, but to overeat and to put on body body fat. And it wasn't. It was only in the last fifty years when when the food companies changed the nature of our food, that that became problematic. And so just briefly, we changed from eating lots of food with lots of fiber and water in it to food that's calorically dense. And so we may be overeating to the same extent we used to in the previous 4 million years, but now we're getting loads and loads of heavy calories. Yeah, you're making me think of... Um... I don't remember the name, the jello guy who then, and they got the letter from above, like the other guys put more sugar in, just go for it. Just put whatever it takes to sell the jello, put whatever it takes to sell the alphabets. No, sorry. I, <laughs> you know your book better than I do, but. Um, or maybe the Tang guys. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. The general, yeah, sure. general foods, I think. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So that, that goes there. Yes, salt, sugar, fat. The first book I wrote was also all about how they change the nature of the food. And Hooked is also kind of looking at all of the vulnerabilities that we have through evolutionary biology in ways that that made that, their efforts even more successful. Why they were able to sort of get to us so much. And this mismatch between, between our biology and the, and the food environment today. Can I ask a couple more questions in this area? Because it's fascinating. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the book no matter what, but now I want to read it more. Because <laughs> okay. now when I grew up, McDonald's was very appetizing to me. I loved it. And now it's been a decade or two or more since I've had McDonald's. And now the smell of fries is like, 
it's certainly not appetizing to me. It's, it's the opposite. It's very unappetizing. And it's not possible to everyone or someone's stuck with it forever. Like I hear that people who have some addictions, like it, it never goes away. They're always battling it. Yeah, I think, well, I'll tell you a story. So I met a man in Ontario who was very overweight. I think he was in the range of 360 pounds. He had incredibly, incredible executive function, was able to lose 180 pounds in one year. Mm-hmm. He had like a lot of things going right in his life that he was able to do that. But that's, that's where the nightmare began for him was not in losing the weight, but keeping it off because he did it so quickly that kind of his, his brain and his body hadn't yet adjusted to the new weight. And so they were just screaming at him to regain that weight. And it became really, it was just so hard to keep the weight off. So I think part, part of the answer to your question, I think that generally it's a matter of time because you're changing, you're changing the memory channels in the brain to value something different than you've been valuing most of your life. And 10 years sounds like about right to me that it can take that long. And the food hasn't changed, mind you. What's changed is in your brain. Mm-hmm. And and maybe some other aspects of your body and biology. Those French fries are the same as they ever were, but now you're cringing at them because you've changed what you value in your brain. And yes, I think for some people maybe it's they can never change that. You know, there's a spectrum that our disordered eating falls on, like addiction generally, where you just kind of have a very mild case of being overly attracted to certain things that you're trying to cut back. And then there's, there's just flat out, you know, horribly out of control addiction that's, that's just much harder to deal with. And so people fall on that spectrum in different places at different times in their lives, too. It changes over time. And that could be going on, too. Something else in your life may have been changing, too that shifted your focus away from loving those, those, that, that fast food to, to sort of hating it. Well, there's definitely an environmental component of, of the more that I identify, say, factory farming with, I mean, I see the images of the cruelty, but really for me, I see the effects of global warming and I think of, of the starvation and things like that. And so when I look at them for some time now, it, the association has be increased to these feelings inside me of, of disgust and, and um, things I want to prevent. It sounds like also, I mean, they've, the food companies or doof companies have really changed the environment. There used to be, I mean, there's a lot more cues around. And certainly in my apartment, I don't think there are any cues here to have, I mean, there's, there's just fresh fruits and vegetables and grains and, and I can't really find anything unhealthy to eat here. And I spend a lot of time in here. If I go outside, when I would eat the other stuff, it would be hard for me to avoid Doritos. And I guess, does Hooks talk about, I mean, the, the physical landscape of the highways? and Yeah, so, so one of the pushbacks from the industry was, you know, how can you call food addicted? Because when you look at, when you do sort of brain scans on people when they're using, say, cocaine versus Doritos, you know, the brain reacts much more strongly to cocaine. The sort of increase of dopamine levels shoots up far higher for cocaine than it does for For Doritos, and I sort of thought about that for a while, went back to my experts who, by the way, 
many of the people in Hooked are brain behavioral researchers who started out looking at drug addiction and shifted over to look at food addiction. So they sort of know both worlds really well. And that's exactly what you just said. One of the first things they point out to me is that Doritos don't have to cause the brain to get as excited as it does for cocaine because of the food environment. They're cheap. They're easy to get. You don't have any risk buying Doritos like you might an illicit drug. And they're everywhere. The cues are constant. And so there's this sort of steady drumbeat that the industry has going for it to get us to acquire and eat those Doritos. So there's a much lower hurdle for them to get over to get you to act on that impulse. It also reminds me that I remember once seeing some video that said that like a cocaine user will walk or an addict will walk into some place and they think like, can I do it here? Can I do it there? Like, what are the opportunities? And when I saw that, I thought that was when I was playing Ultimate Frisbee. So it's this very, it's a community, a sport with a really tight community. And I played it. I mean, I went to nationals and stuff. I was really, I was really into it. And I remember thinking when I walk around, I keep thinking like, how can I play Ultimate around here? How can I throw, like, can I throw a Frisbee here? Can I throw a Frisbee there? Do I know any Frisbee players around here? And I thought, I really like that. So I guess that playing sports isn't quite so addictive, but I guess that you can, I guess from there I learned you can, you can replace the associations of different, how do I put it? You can make it so there are lots of cues to do something that you, to reinforce one, something that you, in a, in a calm moment, you would say, yes, I do want that. Yeah. And, and it works both ways. So one of the, one of the things that really helped the processed food industry out was seemingly overnight one day in the 1980s, it suddenly became socially acceptable to eat anything anywhere, anytime. And so that's when you started seeing snacking just soar as an American phenomenon. Today, we get a fourth of our daily calories from snacking in between meals. On average, I think it was like 480 calories a day per person on snacking. And that And so suddenly it became socially acceptable to walk down the street eating something in between meals or drinking, right? I mean, you're not going to get any pushback from that. But, you know, go to France. They think we're out of our minds to snack in between meals. I mean, you would get like some looks if you're walking down the street eating, you know, a snack or even kind of your lunch. Because to them, the, the idea of doing something that might that might make your next meal less enjoyable is like unthinkable because they put so much value in the meal itself as this, as this loving time to get together and really enjoy what you're doing and socialize and, and, and all of that great stuff. So that's the other aspect of the food environment, which is we suddenly became acceptable to eat the processed food way in a way that it hadn't before. Man, it's almost impossible for me to think of a time when people wouldn't just naturally, when it didn't seem natural to walk down the street. And because now, <laughs> I don't know if you're doing what I'm doing, also translating what you're talking about food with polluting behavior, that no one says like, let's go pollute. That's not the goal. It's, it's a side effect of, well, in this case, I just, on Saturday morning, there was a, a neighborhood cleanup organized by Corey Johnson's crew, uh, my, the Manhattan um, city council member who represents my district. And I've been trying to work with them and they've been inviting me to do stuff with them. So near where I live is, what's it called? Joe's Pizza, John's Pizza, one of the go-to pizza places. And across the street from there is a park. And in that park, there's more trash cans. They keep, their solution is to put in more trash cans. The trash cans are flooding over with big pizza boxes. Mm -hmm. So people take the pizza like 20 yards over 
and they eat it there. And also the idea of when you mentioned France, I think of um, when I see someone walking down the street, this is normally like in the morning walking around, there's a lot of people and they're holding their coffee cup in front of them and they're drinking their coffee. Mm-hmm. And I look at that and I see the cup and I know the cup is going to, and it's probably one of the cups I'm going to pick up one this day. But I also think people used to sit and drink their coffee and enjoy it. And it was a small thing and maybe they'd be with someone. And nowadays people say, I think the addiction speaking says, but I don't have time for whatever. And then they'll start calling me privileged for having the time to do what they think that they don't have the time for. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's the addiction speaking that, I mean, you don't need coffee to live. And I guess some people, I, maybe I just lost a bunch of people there. <laughs> yeah, no, well, no, but I, can, I think you could also, you could, you could kind of make an argument then, and this is true with exercise, as you probably know too, is that, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but People used to say that, you know, running or doing some aerobic exercise for a half an hour, an hour a day will actually create more time and energy in your day. You will be more productive by thinking more clearly and having more energy. So I think that's maybe how I would pitch that to people, which is that that if, you know, if you were to drink your coffee, you know, in a real cup, sitting down at a table doing nothing else but drinking that coffee, that's actually going to generate time and efficiency in a way that just quaffing the coffee down on the run without thinking about it will. Does that make sort of sense? It sounds like the addiction speaking when they're saying that it's making them more effective or that they, it, it, it's giving them time. Well, I was arguing, no, that that's kind of the reality, that by, by taking the time to focus on that activity, maybe I'm arguing against you, But by taking the time to focus on that activity, drinking coffee, doing that in and of itself, sitting in a coffee shop for five minutes, instead of drinking a coffee, walking down the street, right? The latter, you're thinking that's going to say, I'm doing that because I don't have time to sit in the coffee shop. I'm just arguing that taking the time to sit in a coffee shop can actually generate time. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. I think that when, when someone says, I don't have time to sit in the coffee shop, it's really their addiction to convenience that is saying I'm actually being more effective by drinking while I walk or drinking on the subway. Right. And, and or just not, under, not sort of thinking about it. The problem with garbage in the park is, look, I spend a lot of time in the wilderness where you have to own everything you bring in. There are no garbage cans. Mm-hmm. So whenever you generate garbage, that goes back into your backpack. Mm-hmm. And you take that out with you. And there's probably these days, not a, there's not even a dumpster at the trailhead. You're carrying that with you you know, back to the city where you find a place you can dispose of that garbage. So when I go to the park, it's unthinkable for me not to carry all of my garbage out of the park, knowing Mm -hmm. how difficult it is for even the city parks people or other people to clean up sort of their garbage. But that's, but that's my own experience that most people don't have. So they, they don't have ownership over the waste they're creating. And so I think the solution is finding ways to get people to, to accept that ownership of what they're doing. That's why I think the solution, the, I'm putting quotes around this because I don't think it's a solution of putting more trash cans out is actually going to produce more garbage. Not if the city can't pick up the trash cans. No, yeah, exactly. It's like building freeways in LA. You build exactly. Freeway, it fills up the next day. Yeah. It seemed for decades, it made sense. If there's too much traffic, put an extra lane, put another highway, and that should alleviate the traffic. But people adjust to the traffic and they realize, oh, there's an extra freeway. Let's use it. Oh, there's an extra trash can. Let's use it. And it normalizes the walking around and, and, and what, eating while you walk and so forth. 
Mm. And it seems counterintuitive to take away the trash cans. I didn't notice it when I was in Japan, but people told me that in Japan, they don't have trash cans. And it's what you talked about. It's you got to think about what you're carrying with you. Yeah, but that would have to come along with education too. People would have to realize why the trash cans aren't there. So you have to do both things. Yeah. Once or it's not going to work. Yeah. It's crazy because it works the other way. If you just put out an extra trash can, then people will adjust and start using them more. And then stores will start selling more stuff because there's more trash cans to fill. Going back is harder, but you can go, that's, you can tiptoe into salt sugar fat convenience. It's harder to tiptoe back out again. That takes more concerted effort, it feels like. Yeah, because of the memory channels. I mean, somebody once told me that, that we like what we eat more than we eat what we like, meaning that sort of the habits we develop on eating certain things is what causes us to continue eating those things, if that makes sense to you. So, you know, a kid who grows up eating, you know, steamed broccoli is eating that, is liking that because that's what they eat, if that makes sense to you. So, yeah, I don't know why I just said that. Well, it's it's been my experience that now the food that I eat keeps getting better and better. And I've noticed a feeling of euphoria after eating that I never noticed before. Oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the hallmarks of addiction is that the wanting increases, but the liking doesn't necessarily increase, or sometimes it even decreases. So people who feel themselves addicted to either food or drugs or polluting or what have you, it's the wanting phase, the desire phase of that that soars. And then the actual consumption, the feeling they get after actually eating or doing that thing is not generating feelings of joy or pleasure anymore, in often cases even less so. So that's another way of kind of parsing this out. So, so all about the, the industry is all about cranking up the desire part of that equation and their food doesn't even have to taste that good. You don't have to be rewarded by fantastic taste because you've already satisfied that, that addiction need by just acquiring it and eating it. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. The way I've observed that is taste good versus want more. That's how I put mm. it. Mm-hmm. If I had an apple, it tastes good and I want more. But I've occasionally probably had two apples in a row, but I don't think I've ever in my life had three apples in a row. So that the taste of the apples stays the same. The want more goes away. If I eat a chip, it tastes good and I want more. The want more stays high. I could eat the whole bag. But the taste good, actually, I don't think the third chip tastes good anymore. It's, it's just kind of, there's the, the bliss, I guess, of the bliss point when I put it in my mouth and, and crunch. But then I'm kind of picking the stuff that gets stuck in my teeth out. And that, like, that's, that doesn't taste good, but I still keep wanting more. So interesting. So, you know, another way of thinking is that the, the brain's divided into the go brain and the stop brain. So everybody has, a, 
everybody has a part of your brain that puts the stop on behavior that you kind of know is something you don't want to keep doing. And lots of aspects of what we're talking about, lots of commercial products are designed to sort of crank up that go brain Mm -hmm. part of us and shrink the stop brain. So you're not getting the signal helping you saying, hey, three chips is enough. I mean, some of it is inherent to the food itself. Apple has lots of fiber and water, which when it hits your stomach, sends signals to the brain saying, hey, I really think two apples is like way too much. You should Uh really stop now. You're going to get feeling sick. And processed food doesn't have those components that help give the stop part of the brain power to say to the go brain, hey, stop, enough already. Yeah, my mom has picked up this pattern that I, whenever she reads in my blog, when I start writing about uh, a refined, addictive white powder from a plant, I try to write it to sound like heroin or cocaine. And she's like, oh, Josh, it's talking about sugar again. (laughs) And yeah, so that helps me reinforce that. Yeah, they take away the stuff that makes you, the the stop part. Well, I want to go back, way back to the beginning of this. And uh, there's also, when I, when I did the process with you last time about what you think about when you think about the environment, you're pretty quick to jump to the decreasing screen time. And I didn't really reinforce the connection on my part. And so I felt like when you started doing it, you, you were kind of doing it almost pro forma and without that. But it still happens that when you try, it often does connect you with like, why am I doing this? Why, do, why would I want to do this? Is this something I want to do? Right. Is there something I want to do more? Is there something that would connect with what I want to do more effectively than this. And I wonder if a couple of things we could do here is we could say, I mean, I've enjoyed this conversation. I thought it was gonna be short, but I, I just cannot stop listening to what you're talking about. And, and I find it just fascinating and applicable. And we could just say, okay, try it didn't work out. We could try doing the same thing again. We could try refining it, try doing it slightly differently. Are you interested in, in do any of those resonate? I think what resonates for me would be to hit the pause button and I'll circle back to you if and when I sort of think of another thing that I want to cut back on. I think screen time is probably not a priority for me at the moment, so I can't sort of focus too much on it. But something else may come along that I do decide I really want to change, and then it might be interesting to pick up on that again. Okay, so so you have a sense of like, a direction you want to go into and you'll kind of keep an eye out to see if something pops in to fit. And then you'll say, Hey Josh, let's do that next. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then I'll put on my calendar if it's okay with you to check in with you after some time, I'll at some random time I'll check in. And I hope also come March to read your book and bring that out as well. Good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk then. That'd be great. Okay. Thanks for the interest. You're thanking me for the interest. It's like, I remember when, when I said before, I, how every sentence in your book resonated. And I felt like, because food is so everything. And now they're getting their tendrils into everything as well. And so it's almost impossible to escape. Mm-hmm. For most people, for me, I'm, I'm glad to have, at least to some degree, connected more with farmers, connected with the CSA, with the farmer's market. And that's liberated me a lot and gave me a lot of mental freedom. <laughs> but just the way that it touches everything, I, I'll, you said, thanks, so I'll say you're welcome. But really, it's more me thanking you for getting to the heart of something that's and disentangling something that's, it's not just disentangling. As you said, knowing what they're doing helps liberate. It still takes a lot of practice and work. I guess yeah. in, 
it's good to hear, useful for me to hear that it's been a lot easier for me than for a lot of other people. <laughs> and likewise for polluting behavior, it's, I got to remember how much the addiction speaks. <laughs> so thank you. Good. Uh, anything else to finish with before we're wrapping up this, this episode? We'll talk soon. All right. Uh, Michael Moss, thank you very much. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope the parallel between changing eating habits and sustainability habits came across, as well as the techniques those industries use to establish habits that help them, however unhealthy for you or damaging to Earth's ability to sustain life in human society. Since they work to get past your defenses, often with children too young to have developed those defenses, I call them insidious, actually really creepy, like a tick or another parasite that creeps slowly past your defenses. That's one of the ways I think about this stuff is that they're creeping past you like a leech. I don't want to do business with people like that. It makes it easier not to buy their things. The challenge in changing these habits, from one perspective, is to create new neural pathways, what I call learning. But when you think of the neural pathways, you realize how long it takes to get the old ones to change into new ones. When we try to overcome these cravings, change these habits, we focus on the objects of our craving, what we feel like we're missing, and the craving itself. But looking past our craving to seeing that we are training ourselves and that the feelings of withdrawal will pass seems to make it easier, at least from my perspective. I hope for yours. The conversation makes me wonder if I should share more of the challenges and the sweating I went through on the way to where do fills me with disgust, not appetite. Let me know if you think I should. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.